This is Covered Calls with Kevin Simpson, featuring expert insights and analysis from the industry's top investment professionals. If you'd like a deeper understanding of today's markets, this is the show for you. Uh, Thanks for tuning into this episode of At Covered Calls with Kevin Simpson. My guest today from Quadratic Capital is Nancy Davis. We're super lucky to have Nancy. She's the portfolio manager for Quadratic's interest rate, volatility, and inflation hedge. The ETF ticker for that is IVOL, which I love, and the Quadratic Deflation ETF, BNDD. She was named by Barron's as one of the top 100 women in finance, and we're super excited to have you today, Nancy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on as your guest. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, well, you're becoming a big star, so dropping down to our show and slumming it with us for a few minutes is uh, is great. We're lucky to have you. Oh my gosh, no, I'm the one that's lucky. Thank you for having me on. So I I, want to get right into it because over the weekend, you sent out a tweet talking about where the Fed needs to go with interest rates. And this is your world. I mean, far far be it for me to get into a conversation with you about fixed income or God forbid, vol of fixed income. So I'm here to learn. But Mm -hmm. you said that the Fed needs to go another 187 basis points above the 150 they've given us so far. How how do you see them getting us there? So so that's not... um... I really am glad that you asked that question because I probably should clarify it on Twitter. That's just what priced in. That's what the market is expecting the Fed to do. You can see that in, you know, if you pull up Fed fund futures, that's looking at expectations for Fed hikes. So the Fed has been very successful with their their commentary and their forward guidance because they've already removed the rates market. So right now I see 188 and a half basis points of additional hikes priced in just for 2022. So if you think about it, we have, you know, five, little over five months left in the year, and the Fed has to hike 188 and a half basis points. And that's in addition to the 150 basis points that they've actually hiked just to meet expectations. So forward guidance has really already moved the hike expectations. So it's sort of, in my opinion, like it's kind of like a a potentially good fade because if the Fed doesn't hike 188 additional basis points, that's what's already priced in. And they could not hike because of say the economy getting weaker or more negative GDP prints or something bad happening or some catalyst we don't even know about. So the less Fed hike expectations is, is also one of the, you know, Ival has inflation in the name, but it does more than just that. It can also benefit from less Fed hikes, um, which, is, which is how we had positive performance in March, 2020 when tips alone, which is about 85% of the portfolio at the time, was uh, was down because inflation is a risk on asset class, but Ival tends to have, you know, ability to make money when things are not going so great also, which is less Fed hikes or higher vol. Talk to us about the other allocation within Ival with the OTC futures and actually I'll, I'll, I'll kind of leave the question open-ended and let you teach us because that's not something that financial advisors necessarily have access to, or certainly retail investors even more so, to get into that world. Can you just, in a you know layman's terms, educate us on the rest of the portfolio? Yeah, so I think um, one thing that's super important for investors to keep in mind is any place that you have 
um, the ag index. It used to be the Lehman ag and then it was Barclays ag. Now it's called the Bloomberg ag. It's a really old index and it has no inflation protected bonds in it because the treasury didn't start the inflation protected bond markets until the late 90s in 1997. So the ag has no inflation protection in it. It's just regular treasuries. And then it's only short fixed income volatility. And this is really important to keep in mind because of its allocation to mortgages. So mortgages, very simply, you can think of it as a agency obligation coupled with series of short options. Because if you own the financial mortgage, like the ag, which is a third mortgages, you're actually short options to homeowners. And whenever you're short options, you're short balls. So I think there's a lot of focus on um, equity volatility, but I think the thing people really have to keep in mind is if you have mortgages any place in your portfolio, you are short fixed income volatility. And that's what we're trying to give investors instead of just being short convexity and short vol and fixed income, a way to actually benefit from higher market volatility and fixed income, which is, you know, it's, I, I would say coming at, at, you know, when we launched IVOL, obviously we didn't know that there was going to be you know, um, so much inflation or um, having the quantitative tightening starting June 1 is a pretty good, I think, catalyst, especially because the Fed has been very transparent that they don't want to own mortgages on their balance sheet long term. So it's just, it's not, I know it sounds like a, a mouthful and very foreign to a lot of people, but I think it's important to keep in mind that mortgages are short fixed income volatility. They're, it's sometimes called prepayment risk or negative convexity. And those are just jargon terms for saying owners of financial mortgages are short options to homeowners. So you've been doing this for a really long time, even <laughs> when you were at Goldman as prop trader for hedge funds. Is this the best market for volatility? You know, I think um, it's hard to know, obviously, what's going to happen in the future, but I would say the divide between realized inflation at 40-year highs and future inflation expectations, you know, not anywhere near realized is a very wide gap. Um, so the market has become, I would say, potentially a little complacent that the Fed hiking rates is going to slow inflation. And I feel like the Fed hiking rates is definitely going to impact the demand side right? The demand side of the equation, but it doesn't necessarily fix the supply side of the equation, which a lot of that is, you know, whether it's a global chip crisis or the labor market shortages or supply chain disruptions or geopolitical risks, all those things still remain. So I think it's a important time for investors just to be aware of what their bond portfolios actually have exposure to. And most, most funds that are core fixed income don't have inflation protection in the bond portfolio. And they also don't, uh, they're only short fixed income vol through the mortgages. So it's just, it's a, just an important time to kind of rethink things and, and not be blind to the 60, 40 portfolio, because I think 2022 has been a real wake up call that stocks and bonds can lose money together. And that, uh, that potential correlation, you know, might not be, uh, as diversifying as it has been. Well, you just had a great article in Bloomberg that really highlighted that 60-40 challenge for financial advisors. Any, any thoughts on what they could be doing right now to position portfolios with that kind of risk budget in mind, thinking like, 
you know, of course, 60-40 worked in 32 years of deflation and 32 years of decreasing interest rates. Like, mm. it was a pretty easy set it and forget it idea. That's that, as we've learned this year, might might not be the case moving forward. So, any easy, um, it, maybe not even easy, but just any advice for financial advisors in terms of repositioning. So um, we do think eyeball is a nice way to complete that 40% of the portfolio and give it inflation protection, future inflation expectations, and also neutralize the shortfall. So I think a lot of um, financial advisors are using it as, I would say, it's sometimes called a completion portfolio, where they have an allocation to the ag or to core fixed income, and then they want to add in inflation, inflation expectations in the future outside of CPI and also um, give something that potentially could be non-correlated to, you know, very simply equities and credit, which is, you know, the equities corporate, you know, it's just a different part of the capital structure, right? If you own, I don't know, XYZ company stock and you also have XYZ companies bonds and that company has higher labor costs or less revenue or higher expenses, typically credit spreads widen with equities. And so having a little diversification, I feel like the people who love eyeball more and who have it as a bigger weight are the ones who are just like, we we don't want any more credit in our portfolio. We'd rather have equities to have that corporate, corporate beta risk and yep. have more upside potential, but have something there to potentially diversify the equities in a, in a different way. I, I, I can see that for sure. I, I, I'm more, I know, you, I know Eyeball gets a lot of, most of the attention when we see you on TV. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that BNDD is more interesting to me just from the standpoint of positioning for a pullback in inflation, because maybe the supply chains start to get a little bit better. Maybe, maybe the Fed does have some impact, whether, and whether they're uh, the, the major catalyst or not, but if, if we do get into a deflationary picture and you're thinking about maybe a contrarian thesis right now, I'm more intrigued by that fund at the moment. And I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. Obviously, you run them both and you, it's like <laughs> two kids, you love them both. But what are your thoughts on kind of my thesis there of introducing BNDD into a portfolio as well? So it's, we do have both strategies. It's sort of for investors to express their own, their own viewpoints. And, you know, I feel like these are, these are like Lego blocks and you can build whatever dream castle you want with them, um, uh, so to speak. But personally, I am, I think eyeball is something that uh, is important, whether it's eyeball or something else, but to have, I think, you know, we live in a real world and, investors generally are looking at the 70s for the last period of inflation. But the problem is in the 70s, you know, think about the treasury didn't even invent the inflation protected bond market until 1997. So there were no, um, there, there, the interest rate derivative markets didn't exist. The tips market didn't exist. So a lot of people are looking to commodities or equities or real estate for inflation, because that was the only thing that was really available in the 70s. I personally think, especially as you get closer to retirement, you tend to have more fixed income in your portfolio and therefore even more exposure to inflation and inflation expectations in the future. Um, I think it's also super important for people, you know, financial advisors whose clients are retired. Like if you think about, you know, a personal balance sheet, if you're not 
in the labor market and there's inflation, you're not going to benefit from the wage inflation on your personal balance sheet. So I think I personally think inflation protection is just something that investors should have as part of a diversified fixed income portfolio, because if you're going to own fixed income, you kind of have that exposure to interest rates already. And also, I think a lot of investors have the bulk of their net worth in real estate. Most real estate investors will try to hedge their rate exposure because as we have the Fed more aggressive with hikes, you know, and as mortgage rates go higher, you kind of need wage inflation to be able to afford the same uh, monthly payment because the mortgage market is, you know, the real estate market is very dependent on leverage, which is mortgages. And so to me, I think, you know, inflation protection, something like eyeball is pretty important to just have as part of a diversified portfolio and not really taking a bet, especially, especially like say your, your life expectancy is, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you're more at risk that we have inflation and you have less purchasing power, especially if you're not in the labor market. But I know that's a really kind of different way to think about things. I know um, a lot of people are trying to say, oh, we think inflation is going to fall or we think it's going to rise. And in my, in my eyes, I feel like everybody is already shorted. So if you don't have it in your portfolio, you're shorted in your real life. <laughs> so. you're, you're spot on. And we we, we, we live in opposite ends of the investment spectrum, but we service the same client. It's that person who's retiring and, and will be hopefully in retirement for longer than they were in their working careers, healthy, spending money, but faced with that realization that inflation isn't going away. It might be short-term reducing a little bit, but over the longer term, you know, the prices of college and if, maybe gasoline right now is at an all-time high, but, but looking at things to, to think that we're going to go through uh, a period where inflation just stops is, is, is not realistic. So servicing that fixed income retired investor, the baby boomer market, you're talking about inflation hedging within a fixed income portfolio, introducing tips. There's always a, you know, the comparison of the 70s, people sort of forget about what's happening with the employment market right now, but we use mm -hmm. rising dividend stocks for that same case study that you're talking about, which is presumably we're going to be in retirement for a long healthy period. And we're going to need to have more money down the road than we do today. So the, the textbook, like you said, raw land, real estate, commodities. I mean, that, that, that worked in the seventies, maybe even energy, I guess, to a certain extent. But to me, it's about rising dividends. Give me a raise every year. Cause I know what that means. <laughs> yeah. So Pair Devo with Ival. We've got a good, you know, pretty, pretty good mix there. Yeah. I think it's just really important to like, to, to really think about what the future is going to look like. And I think it's also, it surprises many investors that realize inflation is so high, but future inflation expectations are so much lower than we're realized is. Like, um, you know, the problem with tips by themselves is the only measure of inflation is the consumer price index, right? It's one, one index. It would be like, nobody would own the Dow Jones index and say, ta-da, I have, U.S. equities. Why does everybody do that with inflation and inflation expectations? But the tips market is very downward sloping. So, like the um, last inflation print was eight point six in realized terms, but the ten-year uh, break-even, which is the measure of CPI inflation, is two point six two right now. So two point six. It's under two seventy-five. So it's much lower than where realized inflation is, and then. What we do with Eyeball is we try to take that core tips portfolio 
and give another measure of inflation outside of the CPI index because the problem, the CPI index, a third of it is what they call shelter and shelter is actually owner-occupied rent. So it's just not my, it, it's not what the Fed uses actually. They, they tend to look at PCE and other indices, but it's just not the only way to measure inflation. Um, I think the best comparison is, is using equity indices. They're only, they're actually more ETFs than stocks, right? There's so many ETFs and measuring corporate America, nobody would ever measure the stock market with one index. Why would you do that with something as big and harder to measure like inflation? Well, that's why you get so, at least I do, you get so frustrated with the core CPI because it's nothing. Once you, and now you're taking food and energy out. It's basically just rent. I, and I know there's other things in it and I hear the arguments, but it's, um, I guess that's probably why the Fed likes the, PC, the PCE better. Yeah, no, it, it, it's hard to say, um, you know, it's hard to measure something like that, but that's why we think interest rates are such a simple way of looking at inflation expectations in the future. And the rates market is saying, look, we believe the Fed is going to hike. Those hikes are already priced in an additional hundred and you know, 89 basis points just in 2022, um, in addition to the 150 have actually realized. But right now you actually get paid less yield to own a longer dated bond. The, the you know, it's, it's actually like a tax to own longer duration bonds because I think a lot of people are saying, you know, the Fed hiking is going to put the economy into potentially a recession. So it's all about what's priced into the market. And right now the market is saying, you know, the Fed's hiking and that's going to be very uh, bad for, for growth and for, for the, the rates market has already priced it. It's actually the yield curve is, is fully inverted in the forward space, which is includes the Fed hikes. So does that mean we're going to be in a recession in the next 12 to 18 months as <laughs> so often happens with an inverted yield curve? You know, it's hard to know whether it's the chicken or the egg, like which causes, you know, there's been a lot of studies um, looking at it. But I think very simply, if you think about what it is, you know, the Fed sets a policy rate, but the term structure of rates is the yield curve, right? It's where lenders lend money. And right now, if when you have an inverted curve, that means I lend, you know, you, Kevin, money for 10 years and I get paid less than if I was going to give you a loan for two years, right? That's not that's not an economically rational thing to do. You're basically saying I get less value. You know, the there's going to be it's priced for actually a disinflationary environment. So it's hard to know whether the yield curve causes a recession, the inverted curve, because then credit is stopped, right? Like why would I lend you money uh, for ten years and get paid less? Right. <laughs> um, so it's hard to know whether it's chicken or egg. Does the inverted yield curve cause a recession or is it a, you know, crystal ball saying that the recession is coming? I think reality is many investors think we're in a recession right now. So it's it's all what's priced into the future. And um, and right now the rates market is saying even though realized inflation is very high future inflation expectations are going to be significantly lower. And I think that's really where the opportunity exists for investors, because you always, in all markets, right, you want to buy low, you want to sell high. And um, I think most investors don't have inflation in their portfolio and they have it in their real life. And it's a good time, I think, to, to be thinking about helping to diversify, whether it's 
you know, dividends or, or interest rates, just other things outside of that traditional 60-40. I totally agree. And I'm in that camp that we're in a recession. And I know the economists will argue and say that it's not the case because of where we are with the employment sector. But I, I tend to think that might be peaking as well. But from an eyeball test, you know, this is a recession. You look at the gas prices and the prices at the supermarkets. And, and in the old days, it was just, you know, two quarters of a decelerating mm-hmm. GDP. Now I know that it's not the case anymore and that the National Bureau of Economic Research has a whole lengthy list of things that will define a recession. They'll tell us later. But I, I feel like, you know, from a practical standpoint, from a, a layperson standpoint, it sure smells, looks and tastes like it in a whole lot of ways. Yeah, no, it, it's it's definitely, you can call it what you want, but a lot of people have lost a lot of money. Yeah. Um, it's been a really tough start for 2022. And it just seems like, you know, to me, I don't really see how the Fed hikes are going to alleviate the supply side disruptions, you know, because so much of them are unrelated to, um, they're related to other things that are happening uh, in the, the global markets. So that's that that makes their job even that much more challenging because the control is gone and so many of the levers have um will, will have little impact over the supply chain to your point so i totally agree the, the the last topic i want to touch on real quickly is something that i'm always interested about and i know financial advisors are especially their clients where where do you rank municipal bonds right now as far as an investment is it something that people should be considering now that rates have come back, you know, for the past few years, no one wanted to look at fixed income, even for munis because of where interest rates were. But now that it, there appears to be a pulse in the yield market again, is, is, is it time to look at munis? You know, it's, um, I'm not a muni expert. I would say, I think a lot of people um, are, are depending on their tax profile, use munis. Um, it doesn't necessarily, I think you want to have a diversified portfolio. I know um, some investors look at Eyeball. If you go to our, our fact sheet and look at the second page, we have kind of a, a different tax treatment for the options. They're actually taxed as ordinary assets, um, which is, it's very different. Um, it's, uh, it's more, um, you know, potentially something that people have been saying, look, if we want munis because we are looking for tax efficiency. ETFs provide a lot of tax efficiency um, and also having that ordinary treatment from a tax point of view on the options is pretty different because if the, um, say a bear case scenario, if the options don't work um, and say super bear case scenario, they expire worthless, they can actually generate um, negative ordinary income for the fund, which is, you know, I think when you when you look at munis, a lot of people own them because of the tax benefits. So there are a lot of different ways to to look at investing, and I think it's important just to have a lot of diversification. And you don't want to have, um, you know, especially uh, some of these states have um, a lot of businesses leaving. So it really depends on where where your exposure is. I think that was a great pivot to Ival, especially when you talk, when you think about the options within the wrapper of an ETF. We do a lot of covered calls in Devo, and I'm always fascinated by the tax treatments of exchange traded funds. So, another really good reason to look at Ival. Nancy, I could sit here and talk to you all day because I, I've, I've learned more listening to you um, over the past months just on television and here. And I think everyone is grateful for for your insight. And for introducing us to something that isn't accessible everywhere else. I mean, to be a thought leader is one thing, but to have access and allow us to 
to invest with you is, is awesome. And uh, so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you so much. You're so kind. I, I really enjoyed being your guest and having this discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nancy. This message does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase securities through CWP Advisory Services. Investments are not guaranteed and involves risk of loss. The views and opinions expressed in this message are those of investment professionals made at the time this content was recorded, are not necessarily the views and opinions of CWP, and may change in time without notification. For additional information about CWP, visit CWP's or the SEC's website for a copy of our ADV Disclosure Brochure and Form CRS.